Right. It's good that we've sort of entered our world this morning. Did, did you feel that? You know, just uh, a heart. And um, Satan's thrown a nail bomb at our world. Nail bomb is designed to be as hurtful and as harmful as possible and cause as much disruption and cause as much damage that it can be. And uh, before I even came to this morning, in view of what we're going to say uh, from the psalm that we're looking at this morning, um, I just felt within my spirit that as I've been looking at my own life this week in, in light of the psalm that we're going to read later on, um, every sin that we commit is another nail in the body of Jesus on the cross. Now that's a bit dramatic. But Jesus died for us for every sin that we ever commit today, all that we've done in the past. But we don't think about it like that, do we? There's so much, there's so much, we just don't think about it sometimes, I think, which is the worst thing. You know, sometimes we're just ignorant. The lies that I might tell, boom. The wrong thoughts that I have. No, can you sit down, Peter? I'm just, I'll come back to that later. You can ask me a question, okay? I'm just trying to explain something here. And we forget that Jesus died for every sin that we ever commit. You know, and I just say that to cause us to think there was a year at spring harvest when they gave every member a nail. And I've still got the nail at home that Eileen gave me when she came back. It was just to try and make us realize again what Jesus went through. There will be no more nails put in Jesus. What he did actually completed the work that needed to be done for our salvation, our forgiveness, our acceptance by God, our eternal future, and everything like that. But we must remember, because our psalm this morning, and Steve has given it the title, it's about true repentance. True repentance. In some ways, there's a difference between the Old Testament idea of repentance and the New Testament idea of repentance, and we might just look at that later on. But in the end, they're both about accountability before God. I will, you will, each one of you will have to stand before God one day and give an account of your life. I will. Every word that we've spoken, every thought that we've had, we have to answer. And that's accountability. The chimpanzees or the gorillas in uh, Howlitz will never have to stand before God and give an account. But we will, each one of us. And the best answer that we can ever have before God when we stand on that day is Jesus. Because he dealt with all my sin. But if we do still sin, and we do, it's like another nail in the cross. And you won't want to harm Jesus, would you? You want to be there and saying, I was the re-, but the fact he, he was there for you. 
He was there for me. Those nails in his hands and his feet were there for you and for me. And so we just want to go back on that and we say, yeah, I just thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. And I want to, don't want to be the one who's adding to that anymore. I just want to make amends for what you've done for me, Lord. I just want to be the best for you. So our psalm this morning is Psalm 51, and it's about true repentance. Now, David had sinned, and this is where this psalm is about. Psalm 51. Last week, John spoke um, from Psalm 34. The Lord who hears was the sort of title that was given to that psalm that we're looking at. The Lord who hears. And God does hear and God does answer. This is a different psalm in as much that the psalm... If you've got an NIV Bible and it's got a little comment before it starts, it says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's singing music about something that he's done wrong. And so it's what is called a lament. He's sort of singing through the fact that he's offended God. And it's touching him at his core. It's touching him at his spirit. It's touching him where it hurts God. It's a lament. And yet music was involved. We often associate music with worship and praise. But there are other psalms of lament. There's that psalm which says, um, you know, we sat by the rivers of Babylon and there we sat down and wept and remembered the good times. We've been going through a bad time, but we remember. This psalm is David's personal connection with God. There are times of corporate repentance when, when people, as groups of people, stand before God and says, as a nation we've sinned, as a nation we've done wrong. In Fiji, there was a time of revival when the, the church was in disunity. The rivers had no fish in them. And different things were happening in, 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 in the land. And the, the Christians came together and they, they repented towards God. They said, Lord, we're sorry for the things we're doing. The ways we've been going, the things that have hurt you. And it was amazing how the rivers and the waters became alive again. And the fish came back into the rivers after a process of time. Corporate repentance. Times of acknowledging before God that we sinned. This is a personal act of repentance. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, 
wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you want to do that this morning? Do you really want to do that this morning? Just think about it. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's nothing to do with the way that the birth came about or the way that the life came about. Nothing to do with the sex union and the way that conception comes about. It's the fact that once we become a living being, we're responsible to God, even in the womb. You don't understand that. I don't understand it. But that's the way it is, because we're born in a sinful world. Verse 6, Surely you desire truth, in the inner parts. You teach me my wis- me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, Ines, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Those last few verses need to be seen in the context of the Jewish nation who had the responsibility of the laws and the process of God working in history to bring in Jesus, that would lead the way for Jesus coming, ultimately, uh, to die for the world and to give his life as a sacrifice for sins. We need to see this story in context. So if you have a Bible and like to turn to 2 2 Samuel chapter 8. Who was David and... What was he? What was his place in history? Let's just try and put this psalm in context. You remember David was a shepherd boy 
He was growing up, he used to sing praises to God and he loved to be in the presence of God and he loved to pour out his heart to God for the difficulties he maybe experienced in his family. He poured out his heart because of the effect of the nail bomb that had been thrown into the world. He'd pour out his heart to God, but he'd talk to him. He'd relate to him. He'd bear his heart before God. And like a lot of other people, we have the record of that in the Psalms, in in many of the Psalms. We have them here. He exposes his heart before God. And as a boy, he grew up. And I suppose the first big event in his life was the giant Goliath, you know, who was threatening the people of the Israelite people and their army. And they felt defeated even by looking at Goliath. And David was just given some food to take to his brothers working on the line of, of defense, the fighting line for the, for the Israeli army. He was just there to take food. And he saw how that his people, his nation, were afraid. He saw you know, what effect this Goliath was having on his people. And the strength of David, because of his spiritual connection, because of his connection with God himself, his personal relationship with God, he was able to stand up and to speak to this man and to deal with him. He had something within him which didn't come from an army, but it came from his relationship with God. Why should this man be doing this? Why should he be devastating and bringing fear amongst the people? Remember, too, that David, as the Bible tells us, was a man after God's own heart. And so David, what I'm trying to say now, he went on from strength to strength in his relationship with God. He made progress in his life and in the progress of the nation. With David, the kingdom of God was coming in. With David, he was making a difference. But he wasn't in the army. But he did have a personal relationship with God. And he did know the power. We've been singing about the power of God this morning. He did know the power of God in his life. That's why he was able to stand up to Goliath. And so this is the sort of man we're looking at. In 2 Samuel 8, you'll read, if you've got a heading in your Bible, it's got David's victories. David's victories. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Ammah from the control of the Philistines, and that's how it was going on. Now, if you go to the verse 14, verse 13, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, And all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. That's the sort of man he was. He gave him victory everywhere he went. The Christian life can be like that. Because Jesus didn't only die to save us from our sins. He died to give us a new life and to give us power to be overcomers. People who say no. People who are able to resist Satan and he'll go away. People who are able to stand up and become victorious. 
Verse 15 says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That's the sort of man he was. If you go over to the first verse of chapter 11. David had sort of come to a climax in, his, in the history of his victories and the history of just where he was. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, we're just going to turn on the switch of our televisions now and watch Coronation Street or Emmerdale or something else like that. Some other soap, some other titillating program to draw the attractions of people. Just listen. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof on the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Oh, so what's new? So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants. It did not go down to his house. And when David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? You, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat, drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David's plan's not working, is it? In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. And then withdrew from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. 
He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? You killed Abimelech, son of Jerobethesh. Didn't a woman throw up, up a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Thank you for remember that. The things that we do wrong displease the Lord. Yes, Jesus has died for our sins. He's done everything. We're looking at true repentance this morning. But when we cross the line, we displease the Lord. We displease the Lord. We must just remember that this morning. Remember what Jesus died for. You say you're being heavy, David. Jesus didn't die for nothing. It caused his death to deal with my sin and your sin. Sin was still the same to God in David's day before Jesus ever died. And that's why we read the psalm that we did. You say, David, a man, so strong. And yet he fell. And we fall. And we fall. But David had to account to God for where he was. Now the thing is, at this point, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he puts to him a situation. Maybe David had thought, I'm king, I can do what I want to. And maybe this is just a blip in my life. But Nathan the prophet is there for a reason. He's there to remind David what he's done. Why are we here this morning? Just simply that God's word might remind us who we are and actually what we've done. That's why we're here. We must just take that seat. No, I'm not being heavy. I'm taking truth as it is truth. And the reason why Jesus died. I didn't put the title over the psalm this morning. Someone else did. And we're looking at true repentance. What it is to stand before God and to know how he sees us. So let's read on. I'm trying to put this psalm into context. In verse 12, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. 
because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, just having put the scenario to David, he burned with anger within him. We see the man at his heart, really, don't we? We see the man. And sometimes, you know, when God puts our situation to us, either when we read the Bible, some people burn with anger. They're angry. We live in that sort of world that we get angry against injustice. We prayed for those things this morning. But there is a spiritual reaction when truth is put to us. That is the thing. A spiritual reaction when truth is put to us. True repentance is a bit like that. When we realize the whole concept of the thing for which Jesus came, for which he died, the whole cause of the church, it should cause a reaction, a spiritual reaction, as we remember what God. This was an emotional one. This was the one we're burning with anger. And we do get angry. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. And sometimes we see sin in our world where everybody else is doing wrong and I'm not doing anything. I'm separate from it. That's not me. But it is me. It is me. True repentance is seeing that it's me. It's me now agreeing with God where he is. Not God agreeing with me where I am. But it's me now changing my mind to agree with God where he is and what he says. Later, Peter. Yeah. Later on. Me agreeing with God. And we live in that sort of world where we've not come to realise that it's time to agree with God what he's saying. Not what we're saying. Agreement with God. You're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. You even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. It's just like what's now become entertainment. But God says it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. And we could find that grace and that mercy from God. We find, we find that God is full of what he said he is. Grace and mercy. We read in our psalm, as we began to read it, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. 
I don't know how long you reckon to be a Christian, but you will still sin, I will still sin, we will still get things wrong, but we have to remember that our God, whilst being a consuming fire, is also a God who is full of mercy. God has shown mercy on each one of us this morning. That's an act of his grace towards us. That's his intentional decision to show mercy on every inhabitant of the earth, to withhold his anger whilst Jesus took it, to withhold his anger and to show us and to give us mercy. That's the act of his grace. That's the act of his grace towards us. That's how God's decided to do it. Your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And that's what God did. He blotted out his transgressions, and he cleansed him from his sin. And what God did for David, when he asked God to do that, he can do for you and for me this morning. That's the wonder. We sing that song, the wonder of your mercy, the beauty of your grace, that you would even pardon me and bring me to this place. I stand before your holiness. I can only stand amazed. The sinless Savior died to make a covenant of grace. That's where we are this morning. Each chair each one of you is sitting on is an opportunity to be alone with God. Not the person next to you, not the person in front, not the person behind. God is speaking to you and to me where I'm standing here this morning. A covenant of grace to bring us back and to give us victories. It comes out of a sense of true Repentance. When we come to the New Testament, it's the same but different, if you know what I mean. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he, he was preaching to the people. And he was telling them, and they were, there were people from all over the world. And um, they, they said, what must we do to be saved? And he said to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Repent of your sins and turn to God. And that repent, the idea of repentance was given to him, particularly in the context of the Jewish people. The man you've rejected, you now need to accept. The man that people are turning away from in the world today, and you and us, each one of us, turned away in rebellion against God, against Jesus Christ. The change of mind needs to be made. Well, I'm being told that he was only a man. I'm being told that he only did good things. I've been told that he's a man who did miracles. And yeah, he's a good man. But that man's the saviour of the world. That man is your saviour. He, he can become your saviour today. It, the whole concept of changing our mind about Jesus, taking our eyes off ourselves and saying to him,
just want to read you the testimony of James Cox, the British actor. Let yourself go was the advice which the British actor James Fox had received from some of his friends, but he wasn't sure that was right. In fact, he felt that this way led to a horrible black abyss which would destroy him. Searching for a positive alternative, he recalled from the public school chapel days the verse, which we've had this morning, Come unto me, all ye who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tried living a decent life, and he went to communion on Sundays, but he found this boring, and he had nobody to help him. While performing in a play in Blackpool, he met a man at his hotel's breakfast table, and James Fox asked him what he was doing in Blackpool, and the man replied, I'm spending a day with the Lord. Fox felt that this man had been sent by God to help him, and so he told this total stranger about the emptiness of his religious search. In return, the man explained in terms that were quite new to James Fox, God's plan of salvation, which he drew on a serviette. As Fox himself later described it, to believe was not hard. The facts were offered to me in honest and simple truths by eyewitnesses that compelled trust. But to turn was harder. That little phrase, but to turn was harder. There was the risk of losing something, of surrendering my legitimate control over my own body, of yielding up my liberty. There was the challenge to change my way of life, my attitude to right and wrong. What about my money? Who would I be? Who who was I meant to marry? Would I have to become a missionary? These sorts of questions were harder. But what my eyes fell on as I reflected on the literature... Bernie had left me was this word but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us didn't I dare to risk losing something of this life did the loss compare with Jesus who gave up all his whole life that I might be given life couldn't I trust him with all my future if not who could I trust That night, I knelt down beside my hotel bed in simple response. And he came to know Jesus Christ as his saviour. There's a well-known phrase that Margaret Thatcher used in one of her speeches. The ladies not for turning. But sadly, that's the response of many people today as they stand before God. I'm not budging. Nothing you will say to me will convince me that I need to change. I'm just standing where I am and not moving. The whole concept of true repentance is that I change. That I turn. Just one more quote here. A French admiral was defeated in sea battle by Nelson. He was brought to Nelson's quarter deck. He strode forward with his arm outstretched as if he were about to greet a friend, an equal. And Nelson turned his back on him saying, Sir, 
I want your sword first. Whatever we use to fight against God, he expects us to lay it down. I want your sword first. You see the point, don't you? Whatever st- it's before the cross I kneel. It's before the cross I receive. It's before the cross I accept, not give. I accept what Jesus done for me. Nelson wanted the admirable to willingly lay down his sword, his symbol of defiance, before him. Only then could there be any talk of friendship between them. Similarly, Jesus says to us, repent, turn from your sins as the first step. Then you will enjoy my friendship. You enjoy that communion. David had to lay down all that he'd done before God and turn and repent, turn away from that and said, Lord, I've sinned. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak. A moment ago I said that when we come to repentance, it's the time that we agree with God. And David came to that point of agreement with God so that it may be proved right what you said. This whole book that we have before us this morning is a book of proving what God has said is right. That's where we stand and that's where we are. It's a wonderful thing that God's done for us. Cataclysmic what he's done for us. Cataclysmic is what he did when he flooded the earth. And I finish with this. The sin came up before God was so unbearable before God that he repented. And it's used, it's used in an authorised verses. God repented that he made man. Changed his mind. But he didn't dismiss it. Judgment fell on the earth. And the earth was flooded and Noah was saved. But that was an act of his mercy. That was an act of God's mercy. It was that changing, that turning. A similar idea is put to us every day. You know, the lady's not for turning. Put down your sword first. And then we might know that acceptance by God. God's not interested if we just want to bring our baggage. He just wants you. He just wants to love you. He just wants to give to you. He just wants to put all his treasures on us and make us people of victory. Father, we thank you again for the wonder of your mercy, the beauty of your grace, that you would even pardon us and bring us to this place. We stand before your holiness. We can only stand amazed. The sinless Savior died to make a covenant of grace. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise your name. Time.